This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Likewise. And uh, Chris KP. Hello there. How are you? I'm good. You've got your headphones sort of strangely skewered off no, your No, no, head. my headphones are fine. My head's slightly out of way. Chris <laughs> is very hip. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you. That's uh, strangely generous. Yeah. you got, you got to, you got to visualise this one, folks. He, uh, he has headphones that are, you know, the key is phones. Plural, there's one for each ear. Maybe I've got three ears. And he's only got, he's only using one. It looks, just looks odd. <laughs> anyway, we've got an hour of science for you. We, uh, we have some guests coming into the studio a little bit later. We have, um, a student from Sydney we're going to get on the phone who's just won or come forth in this amazing international competition, which should be really cool. And, uh, we've got some news for you. Dr. Yuan, do you want to start off? I will. Uh, I'd like to talk about bees, uh, our favourite little insect that do so many wonderful things, including keep lots of plants growing and the human population alive, basically. Mm. Uh, so there was a wonderful piece of research that came out uh, this week in science from researchers at RMIT and also in France. Talese, I think, was the university. And they've basically shown that uh, bees are able to understand the concept of zero. Oh, yeah. Which is only it's only common in advanced cultures. Is, but- that, is that important because there's soon going to be that many of them? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, is that too dark? Too that soon? Dark, dark but true, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. rough. Fair point. Yeah, no, it's uh, even the Romans actually forgot about zero, just mm. to put it in perspective. Really? So, wow. exactly, really. So, uh, it's, it's a really important uh, number to get your head around. Uh, it's, and in terms of actually understanding what zero is, there's actually four steps involved. The first one is imagine if you have a glass, there's nothing in it. Okay, you recognise there's nothing in it. The second one is imagine two glasses, one's got something in it, one's got nothing in it. Okay, it's relative. The third one is putting that in order. So, obviously, zero being at the lowest and then mm. increasing amounts of something. And the fourth one is being able to represent that as a symbol. Now, of course, bees can't actually write zero yet that we know of. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're shaped like a zero, though. (laughs) But but they've got to number three. They they can actually recognise zero relative to other things. And so the way the researchers did this was actually put up cards on a wall uh, with different uh, numbers, uh, sorry, yeah, um, numbers of blobs essentially, so patches, and they got a reward depending on which one they visited. So um, if they went to the wrong one, they got uh, quinine, which is a really kind of sour, if anyone take, like what's yeah, yeah, gin and yeah, tonic, yeah, so yeah. it's a very, very sour um, flavour. The right one, you get the sugary reward. And they put up a blank um, card representing zero, and the bees learnt to recognise this in relation to um, different numbers of blobs on other cards. And Mm. so um, this is pretty exciting because it obviously suggests that bees can actually recognise what zero means in in terms of the concept, not actually the, Mm. you know, the Mm. number drawn, but the concept of zero itself. And they actually also managed to put that in order. So they had, they could actually, you know, pick out zero relative to the other blobs on the cards. They were more accurate um, when there was a big difference between um, zero and another number. So if you had zero and one, they were less accurate to say between zero and six, which is um, also an important thing in terms of understanding different numbers and orders of numbers. Mm. So this is pretty impressive for little bees. And bear in mind that bees, you know, their brains are pretty simple compared to, say, ours. So it's, you know, sort of, you know, a few million brain cells in the average human brain cell. I think there's over 80 billion cells, so a lot more developed. So it just, again, shows that even what we might kind of arrogantly say are quite simple brains uh, and neural abilities, bees are doing pretty well. Mm, mm. Um, and 
the other thing that researchers said were, was that this has potentially really important applications for things like driverless cars, deep learning and so forth, um, where you're making obviously decisions all the time. And we've often sort of been coming at this from being really complex, but it just goes to show that if, you know, you can solve these questions that are numerical questions, essentially, with quite a simple brain, this is quite exciting for people who are trying to understand how to use this information for developing things like deep learning and driverless cars well, and the, so forth. So it's, it's the core of, of binary systems. Exactly. Yeah, zero, zero, one. Yeah. So <laughs> they can get a sequence around that. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So but very cool. And your ability to solve problems in mathematics depends on having zero. Like if you if you yep. are looking for, you know, several equations with several unknowns and so forth, the concept of zero is mm. really important. So without that, um, all the more detailed mathematics yep. you just you just simply can't yep. do. So that's you know, that's why the Romans didn't have rockets. Yeah. I mean, what do they do anyway, really? Not much. What are the Not Romans much. did for us recently? Uh, yeah. Roads. Yeah, <laughs> aqueducts. Yeah, yeah a few yeah. things, but yeah. yeah, not much. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Anyway. Chris KP, what do you got for us? Uh, mice. Um, <clears throat> okay, but but let's we're getting, get back we're to getting bigger. Yeah, well, let's get even bigger for a minute. Uh, well, there's there's a really interesting study that uh, came out of the uni- the Institute for Psychology at the University of Freiburg, where they were looking at how the brain forms pathways in order to understand memories and, and tangible events, and and more specifically um, locations and, and the uh, the relative position of things. Now, if you want to do that with people, which has been done to some extent, that's relatively easy. You mm. put them in some kind of scanning thing, and you tell them to imagine their way to the door, you know, right. or home or whatever, and yep. you can track it. And the reason it's easy is because, and I use the term, you know, in uh, in quotes, the reason it's relatively easy in people is because they'll essentially do what they're told. Hmm. A lot harder to convince a mouse to do what it's told. Um, you need to give it some incentive to do that. And just being still is quite hard. Now, what they wanted to do with these mice is track this this neuronal um, uh, imaging or image the, the, uh, the neuronal activity using two-photon calcium imaging, um, which is a real-time system. But, of course, that means you've got to have the mouse you know, awake and doing stuff in real time and it's just not going to work inside an actual maze, for example. The traditional mouse maze is too movie. The mouse is running all over the place and you can't right. possibly keep a track on what its brain's doing. But that's, of course, if you use a very, very old-school, traditional, three-dimensional, real matrix. If, on the other hand, you do what these guys did and use a virtual maze, you're totally fine. So what these mice are doing is they're actually not doing anything inside a maze. They're walking and running and standing on a polystyrene ball, which is floating on compressed air, um, and they're inside a virtual game. So, so, the, so the ball can spin, presumably, so, in every so it feels like they're walking on exactly. a flat surface. It essentially, or, like, you know. Well, I did actually, because I'm old school, I did actually like the idea that the system of the ball is basically like an old-fashioned mouse. This is a mouse on a mouse. Yeah, a mouse on a mouse. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. 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 You like wonder, that. though, like, yeah. you know, I have this image, though, because there's almost no friction. So <laughs> when it gets to the point where the mouse is running and it goes faster and faster and faster, <laughs> they just can't keep up. I was thinking maybe the mouse <laughs> think it's got superpowers now. Yeah, I'm going I know. so fast. I'm going so fast, but this, the earth keeps going faster. <laughs> yes. I can't yeah, keep well, up. Well, see, but of course, the mouse is not alone in this. You need to have someone from the lab essentially in the game with the mouse because when right, it gets right, to right. you want it to go to certain places and so it gets rewarded for turning left or turning right or stopping or whatever so it can memorize where good things are like it would in a maze so when it gets to a little thing that you want it to be rewarded by it has to get a real reward 
Mm. It's not like a person mm. in the world they'll go, oh, I'll bank that pretend thing in my pretend right. kitty. Right. So they actually give it a little, you know, it'll sort of, you know, go to eat something and they've got to put something under its, its mouth, mouth really yeah. quickly yeah. so that it gets rewarded for doing that. Uh, and the great thing about it is that it actually has worked. They have been mm. able to track the the establishment of neural pathways in the brain um, and the fact that these occur in the hippocampus for the short term. If they're important enough, they'll get moved into cortical places in the brain at different points. But, mm. yeah, they're able to track it by putting the mice inside a virtual game, essentially, which is infinitely more flexible than the real world. I'm seeing a whole new genre of video games coming out soon where, you know, humans and other animals are actually in the game together. That's oh, what I'm seeing. I thought you meant where you, got, you actually got real food. <laughs> well, that <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> hamsters, you know. <laughs> like, you can't eat hamsters. That's not cool. <laughs> well, I don't know. Depends on- Sorry, I'll, I'm not going to judge you. You do what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Almost made a source joke then. But, uh, I did. Uh, well, thank you, Chris KP, for that visual. Um, that I'm not Pleasure. sure I, I want. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that uh, people may remember back in uh, 2015 was the New Horizons spacecraft going past Pluto and completely changing our view of that uh, mm. ex-planet, maybe still planet, whatever you're going to call it, um, astronomical yeah, body, which is on the... You're clinging to that. <laughs> yeah, it's just... <laughs> it's so bloody interesting. What the hell? Um, who cares? Anyway, the, uh, the the fun thing about it, of course, is that um, the New Horizons craft was not designed to go to Pluto and orbit Pluto. It was designed to rapidly go past Pluto Take some really cool data while it was going past and then head on out into the, the rest of the Kuiper Belt, Kuiper Belt, whatever you like. Um, <laughs> got in before you, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> and, and look at some other large objects which are out there, which are potentially, you know, maybe as interesting as Pluto, maybe not, but um, interesting stuff. Now, in order to do that, though, of course, they need to conserve power because, you know, this thing only has a certain amount mm. of juice in it. And so what they do is they put the craft essentially into sleep mode. And I must admit, I, I, I'm not sure how, what it's like at NASA and the Goddard Space Flight Center and that where they control all this. But for me, it'd sort of be like turning your car off, you know, going to the airport, turning your car off, not coming back for 30 years and then just hoping it'll start. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. There's got to be some nervousness, yeah. some anxiety around, totally. will it switch back on? Oh, and by the way, it's so far away, you just can't do anything about it if it doesn't start. It's just tough. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, there's no, no RACV up. There's, there's no. There's yeah. very yeah. inches of long-term yeah, 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 there's just, yeah, yeah you're at the, the real, the bus <laughs> won't even go there. <laughs> but um, anyway, this, uh, this week, uh, they woke it up. So it, wow. it went through its normal wake-up sequence and it is back online and communicating um, what, with Earth what again. Is the, what is the, the, the lag between hitting the turn-on button and it actually mm. turning on and well, knowing? Well, the turn-on button is at the craft's end. So, right, okay. you know, that, so basically, you know, it has a sequence of events that sure. it, in its computer that it, it follows. Um, but the lag back to Earth, I think, is about five hours. So okay, but they would, they would be ready for that. They'd, they would have, they'd have a, a date and a time in the calendar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They know exactly when. <laughs> Too, suddenly yeah. just, you know, um, but you know it's it's currently um like it's six billion kilometers from earth at the moment so it's a long way it's a long way out and the next object they want to go to is called ultima thule which sounds a bit much better name much better name one, one of the better names ultima in, in thule. Space. yeah yeah and so and you know it's going to be shortened to ultima straight away right yeah. so it's in fact you know even when i was reading up about this on nasa site they you know they dropped the, the second half inside about the third sentence <laughs> wow. so good on you um but it's it's interesting because these things are so far out. Um, 
I'm not sure if you guys remember the Hubble pictures that yeah. we had. So the best pictures we had of Pluto yeah. um, really showed you squat. Yeah, they weren't that good. <laughs> they weren't that good. And you're navigating one of these craft through at extremely high speeds, you know, faster than any plane or any, any other, you know, thing on Earth. And you think, well, how many moons has it got? Well, we just don't know. Yeah. And, and they were finding new ones right up until the last minute when they were, they were doing the Pluto flyby. And so with Ultima... Already dropped the thought <laughs> with Ultima. You know, they don't really know what what they're looking at. So in the next few months, it will start at some uh, basically sort of observation period. So this will be in August. It will start that, and that will be primarily actually initially for some of the navigational elements of this. So they'll be making navigational changes, you know, at this point because again, you know, we kind of know vaguely where this object is, but the imaging of it's pretty poor because it's so far out. Mm. And so they really need to know what's going on before they try and navigate past this thing onto other, you know, Kuiper Belt objects. So it's it's interesting. It's cool. Um, it is cool. It's very and cool. it'd be it'd be fascinating to see just, you know, whether or not this object will be what we expected of Pluto, which was just some icy rock that was boring. Um, but we, <laughs> but didn't, we didn't even, get that. In some ways, it's even more exciting because, well, we, we had a, an idea about Pluto and we got so much more, but yeah. we've got less of an idea about this thing. So it's actually almost newer. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's I mean, completely it's, you know, it's completely it's completely new. And, um, and so, yeah, so the delay... Um, you know, for the signals, when when we get there, will be it's five hours and forty minutes. I I exaggerated it a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it's still a while. <laughs> it's like you don't really have time to. Yeah, you know, so think of there's an extra moon. Quick yeah. turn. <laughs> Oops. You know, the turnaround time is ten hours. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> I'm not sure we can get the information there. Like but um, anyway, look, it's good. It's good to know that the craft has woken up and everything is. Um, uh, they're going through sort of the testing at the moment, to make sure everything's functioning, but it seems to be functioning. So it's just it's sending back you know so much data. It's incredible. So it'll be um, it'll be cool, awesome. and it will get to um, it will get to the new object on New Year's Day, twenty nineteen. So that's not actually no, it's not very far, far away. away. No, um, it's moving fast. So anyway, there we go. Um, next object in the Kuiper Belt, of which there are millions. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're picking the big ones. No, no one's going to notice. Yeah, no, no one will notice <laughs> if you miss one. Uh, but we're we're, <laughs> we're picking the big ones. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Now, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. And on the line now, we have Angelina Aurora. She's a Year 11 student from Sydney Girls High. Aurora, uh, Angelina, can you hear us? Yep, I can hear you. Thanks so much for chatting to us. We wanted to um, have a, a talk to you because of some of the amazing things that uh, you've been doing recently. You have just gotten back from Pennsylvania and got fourth place in a competition over there. Tell us a bit about what this competition is about. Yeah, so it's basically the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, which brings together 1,800 students all the way from 81 different countries. Mm-hmm. And it's just so they can share what they've done over the past year in terms of science projects, creations and inventions, and maybe in future interact with each other, collaborate with each other. Okay. And... You went there because you've been working on a new type of plastic. Tell us, I mean, how many, to be honest, how many Year 11 students come up with new types of plastic? (laughs) Yeah, not many. I create a plastic out of discarded shrimp shells and silk cocoons that decomposes 1.5 million times faster 
than conventional plastics, yet exhibits the same properties as plastics used commercially, such as strength, elongation, flexibility, clarity, and endurance. So this would significantly reduce the amount of air, water, and land pollution caused by plastics. And in fact, it releases nitrogen into the soil, which is really good for plant growth, health, and immunity. Hmm. Now, Sydney Girls High School, they got a really good science program, or are you, you're just doing this in your backyard? Uh, so I've, they do have a really good science program. I initially started this in year nine, where I was looking at the difference between corn, potato, and tapioca starch bioplastics. So that's where the whole idea came from, and then to improve that at school. Um, but I did this mainly my own time outside of the lab at universities and uh, at my house. Hmm. And why did you choose those particular materials? They seem like an odd, um, odd grouping. Uh, so with the shrimp shells, I was actually w- working on a way to improve the cornstarch plastics, which is what I found to be the best. But I found them to be soluble in water and they were taking away a food source. So that's where I came up with the idea to use waste. And in fact, after a long day in the lab, I was looking, I was having prawns for dinner and I looked, oh, they look plasticky. What makes them look like plastic? And that's where I started looking at the idea of waste and um, getting the material that makes them look plasticky, chitin, and chemically converted it into chitazan mm. to make my plastic. Mm. Now, in terms of the, the plastic itself, I mean, how, how have you been supported in terms of this as a product? Is this something that you now have a patent for? Is it something that you have sort of companies interested in? I mean, where's it going next? Uh, so I've actually been really lucky to get a lot of companies that are interested in manufacturing as well as selling my product. Um, and I've gotten support from big companies uh, to encourage people into environment, uh, into being passionate about the environment. So I've been doing a lot of that. But I'm working on getting a patent right now mm. and hopefully it will take off from there. Congratulations on your project and science behind it. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, my, my question is, I guess, how available uh, will these materials be? It's obviously, um, you know, shrimps uh, you know, part of the environment and we, we harvest those, um, you know, many people eat them. But to produce enough plastics in quantity, you're going to need enough shrimp shells. So how sustainable would that be potentially to, you know, produce as a plastic in terms of demand? Um, and also, I guess the second question is, how do you think this might compare with other natural forms or uh, sources of plastic, do you think? Uh, so, Australia, we consume a lot of seafood. We're such a big seafood-eating country. And this material, the carbohydrate, can be extracted from all crustacean shells, such as crab and lobster, as well as, if need be, insect shells Uh, because they all contain the same material. And we do produce a lot of seafood as well as all over the world, such as fish markets. So this is quite abundant. And even if 5% of the plastics in the world are made out of my plastic, it would still make a significant difference with air, water and land pollution. So right now, I'm mainly focusing on products with short end of life, such as plastic bags and agricultural mulches because of the releasing of nitrogen to the soil. Uh, so it's quite abundant and with other natural products uh, right now as I know of space there hasn't been much done in terms of plastics uh, so this is quite a new invention and it's a new thing that people are trying to take on. Fantastic, thank you Hey Angelina, it's Chris KP here I, I'm looking forward to the day when we have um, an extra recycling bin for seafood um, which <laughs> it would go to a good cause um, I, I just wanted to know so you mentioned that there were thousands of students at, uh, at, at ICEF so you've been there previously did I, did I invent that idea? 
Uh, no, I haven't been there previously, but I hope ah. to go there again. <laughs> okay, so because I was well, the, the reason I was asking that is because obviously, I mean, Shane's right. People in Year Eleven don't often produce new plastics, but you would have been interfacing with just so many other people who are with, with great ideas. Do you did you have any any interactions that gave you a sense of of future collaborators? Is there is there a, a, a new world, a new generation of uh, of new plastics people? Yeah, so I found quite a few projects on plastic. They were all obviously a bit different, but the same principles behind it. And even projects that weren't about plastic, that were about environmental sustainability, um, I found lots of people that I could potentially collaborate with. So far, nothing has come out of that yet, but still connections that I've made in the future that could be useful. Mm, that's cool. Now, Angelina, you, you must um, you must be interacting, as you said, with the universities a bit here in Australia. Um, they must be climbing over each other to get you at this point because there are entire centres of excellence mm. and so forth in Australia trying to produce new plastics that are frankly not getting getting there and you've ripped one out in your backyard. I mean, what, what sort of interactions are you having with, with the, the sort of universities in, in Sydney or around Australia? Uh, yeah, so I've been getting contact from a lot of universities such as inviting me to look at their labs and working with them. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you have. Yeah, but the main university that I have been working with in Sydney, uh, they're the main one that I'll continue to be working with because I just mm-hmm. know a lot of people and I'm used to that environment. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I'm potentially looking forward to working with new universities and eventually when I leave school going out um, and exploring the rest of Australia and yeah. the by there. Yeah, I think, you know, just... When you're talking to universities and they're trying to recruit you, just use words like parking space, you know, <laughs> scholarship. Um, yeah, I'm sure they'll be. I'm sure they'll be happy to to help you out. So it's fantastic again on the on the research into plastics, which is obviously really really important for a whole range of reasons. I have to ask, do you have any other exciting science projects that you're thinking about, or or, or is that a top secret for now? Um, so right now, I'm thinking on furthering this project um, and extending this plastic because it does exhibit antimicrobial properties as well. So maybe using it in different types of applications such as food packaging and slightly longer end of life, but also um, trying to move this into a medical kind of field because that's what I'd like to go to at the end of the day. So uh, looking at dissolvable switches and bandages and um, how I can make a sustainable material and a natural material be used in medicine. Mm. I mean, that, that's where I wanted to sort of end this interview in a way, Angelina, by asking you, and I'm going to say this in a way that's going to sound terrible. What do you want to be when you grow up and you, you know, <laughs> like, and you, you, you're not doing all the things that the adults are supposed to be doing, but you have time to, to think about your own, your own career? What, what's your, what's your dream there? Uh, so I'd like to continue on with this in the future and maybe environmental engineering, but I've always been really interested in medicine and I really like it how people can kind of tell their stories to you, open up and be vulnerable, but specifically in pediatrics with children, how they bring on such a new look to life. And if you can make a smile on someone's face in that setting with something such as important, so important as health, I think that would make my entire day. So I, at the end of the day, I really like to go into medicine. Look, I, I think uh, you'll get to do whatever you want by the sounds of things, and there'll be universities just clambering over you to uh, to take you on. So, best of luck. Thanks so much for talking to us. We hope to see this uh, yet another, you know, great Australian invention um, coming out. And this one from from someone so young, it is just an incredible effort you've put in, and well done. I, I understand you came fourth in that competition in Pennsylvania, so well done on that. I mean, there was only eighteen fourth, but there was only eighteen hundred people, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do wrong? Um, <laughs> it's, look, fantastic. Thanks, thanks again for chatting to us and good luck with your future. You have a really excellent future ahead of you. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Our, our pleasure. That was Angelina Arroyo, who is a Year 11 student at Sydney Girls High School and producing plastics that the rest of us aren't doing. Um, amazing stuff. Seriously impressive. It's Seriously bad, impressive yeah. stuff. So, anyway, uh, we'll go back to just producing this little radio show for the next few minutes. <laughs> 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 Make yourself a cup of tea or something, folks, if you can handle that. We're, uh, we're, we're doing the best we can here. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Megan Munsey. She's the Deputy Director of the University of Melbourne Centre for Stem Cell Systems and heads the Ethics, Engagement and Policy Unit of Stem Cells Australia. She's been in the studio before. Megan, welcome back. Hello, Shane. It's great to have you here. We, I mean, every now and then I think you and I just need to unload some sort of personal <laughs> grief on the stem cell industry and what's going on. So about every six, nine months we get you back. <laughs> That's worth doing. Um, I, I think we've got probably a few things we want to talk about today. So why don't we just start off first with, for, for those who are just completely unaware of the stem cell sort of world, just give us a quick couple of minutes on um, what stem cells are, where we're at. Well, I think stem cells are a really exciting type of cell that's found in our body. So we have them already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have an, a really interesting sort of a series of properties. And I suppose as a scientist, I want to know how to harness those properties. So really what they're known for is being able to not only replicate themselves, but be able to grow into a replacement cell. Mm. So, you know, the classical stem cell is the stem cell found in your bone marrow, which makes your blood cells, your red red blood cells, your white blood cells, your platelets. And, of course, it's the cell we turn to if we've had a bleed and we want Mm. more more red blood cells, or perhaps it's the cell that goes something goes wrong with during leukaemia. So we already use those types of stem cells, those blood stem cells, to treat people to to perhaps donate your stem cells to help someone else with leukaemia, to give them healthy Mm. stem cells. But what we want to do is perhaps extend that and see whether we can take other types of stem cells in the body, um, stem cells found perhaps in the heart or in the kidney or in the liver, and regenerate tissue. So that's sort of the quest, I suppose. And what happened about 20 years ago, you well may well remember, is that we found that we could create a new type of stem cell from a human embryo. And mm. this stem cell is really, really um, diverse in what it can grow into. So most of those other stem cells I've mentioned that are from the body have a restricted right. developmental pathway. They can only do one thing. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. Or they kind things, of yeah. make the cell from the organ that they kind of come from. Right. Yeah. Um, but these uh, pluripotent stem cells that are found in embryos can be actually be coaxed in the lab to do anything. Mm. They can grow into, again, sort of eyes of, cells of the eye, cells of the lung, cells of the heart, cells of the kidney. There was a huge controversy around that, though, wasn't there? I mean, well, the certainly. idea of using them from embryos. Well, yeah. certainly, 20 years ago, that was, mm. you know, a, a real... Don't uh, touch. Yeah, a barbecue stopper, I think. <laughs> uh, people were very concerned about that and, and concerned that we were manipulating life. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, just to be to be clear, we were using human embryos that were created in IVF, so mm. created to help couples mm. um, overcome their infertility but were then... Discarded. Yeah, they were going to be discarded. So this was an avenue that they could be donated to research to Mm. sort of allow us to explore. And from that research, from that kind of donation and and the knowledge that that, that that research has um, contributed, we, uh, our colleague, Shinya Yamanaka, uh, was able to work out 
the genes that were important uh, uh, to control pluripotency. And he's kind of been able to identify and then craft a whole new avenue of pluripotent stem cell biology. So that's about 11 years ago. Mm. So that's been a real fundamental shift. And so same principle, can grow them in the lab, you can grow large numbers of them. They're kind of very plastic, but given the right signals, they can turn into things. But, so, the, but these new ones, these new yeah. ones aren't from embryos. Exactly. These are, so exactly. these are from any any part of the body, really. You can make them from skin cells, you can make yeah. them from blood. So it's interesting. I mean, this is one of those rare examples, I think, where I'm not even sure how to put this, but it almost feels like a religious overlay has occurred mm. to science in terms of that pushback on the use of embryos. I think that's where most of it was sort of coming from, not, yeah. not, not exclusively, but most of it. And it has actually led or at least contributed to a, a better pathway actually a more sustainable pathway because i mean if you if you can only get these embryos from you know xivf you know um trials and so forth yeah. uh that's a limited supply whereas if i can get them from anyone and i can get them from my very own you know so like i'm not going to give you um, embryos, but I can give you plenty of skin cells. Exactly. So that that's a, it's kind of headed things in the right way accidentally, hasn't well, it? Well, accidentally or, or, or as a culmination of that mm. discovery. Um, what I think is really interesting is I completely agree with you that, that the, this, the IPS, or we, we call them induced prepotent stem cells, this area of research certainly uh, overcomes perhaps some of the angst around using human embryos. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's without ethical challenges. And that's right. what I think I find really um, interesting is that in, from an ideological perspective, it's been embraced as though, wow, and we can, we no longer have to use human embryos. We can just do this in a dish. And it's sort of an, it's, it's, it's ethical. And mm. it really matters, like any research involving humans or animals for that matter. It's what we do with that research and how we yeah. do the research that we really should be having the conversation about. Yeah. I wonder how much, um, and this is just sort of an aside before we continue, but you know, with the new CRISPR gene editing technology, it's almost like there's a bigger target now for people with ethical problems with medical research to go after. <laughs> and it's like, I wonder how much stem cells is kind of going to fall a bit into the background. It's like, don't worry about that stuff. These people can change the genome. <laughs> you know, like it's it's almost like there's a bigger there's a bigger threat now than you know. There's some guy in I know it's uh, somewhere in Korea or somewhere who wants to do head transplants. Well, he's kind of big forgotten. Yeah. yeah, like there's yeah. all this ethical stuff going on, and CRISPR is probably at the forefront of of those concerns. I mean, how how has the the sort of pressure on the stem cells community sort of changed recently? Uh, well, I think in terms of CRISPR, in terms of genetic modification, which is what we we're kind of mm. talking about, we can now do it better, quicker, easier, right. and I think. That, that perhaps makes it more of an urgent issue to talk about it, to address it. Yeah. From, a, from a scientific community perspective, you know, we're excited about using this technology. However, we think that there are applications that are acceptable and applications yep. that are not. Yeah. And modifying the genome of an embryo Right. Is, is really not viewed as acceptable at the moment. The justification mm. just isn't there. However, modifying the stem cells from the skin of a child with a rare skin disease using CRISPR or other genetic modification, that's welcomed mm. because this means now we have a new way to correct a mutation, to give um, to to help someone with, that will then have a long lasting, not just a transient benefit, but a an ongoing benefit throughout their life. And I'm here. I'm referring to a fabulous study that was published in Nature last year by some colleagues in Italy and, and Germany, where a, a young boy was dying. He mm. he had a, a dreadful infection as a culmination of his skin disease, and uh, they took a little biopsy. 
They made iPS cells, they cultured them, they corrected genetic mutation, they made sheets of cells, and he's now back playing soccer. Mm, wow. Yeah. So it's a pretty remarkable proof of concept. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about was around, you know, as you say, for 20 odd years or more now, we've been hearing, you know, about the amazingness of stem cells, you know, and, but it doesn't feel as though there are a lot of, you know, clinically available outcomes. And I think at some stage, it's like, you know, so many areas of medical research, it takes so long, but the hype that is pushed yeah, out into the yeah. public is so disproportionate to the reality. And I know that hype is to get money for research, but the community does after a while sort of disengage. And as you know, then, you know, inappropriate <laughs> operators can move into that space exactly. as a result of that hype, you know, directly as a result of that hype. I mean, how, how are we going in terms of actual treatments and so forth at the moment? Are there many around? No, well, well, I, leaving aside, of course, the, the, the use of blood stem cells yep. that we've talked about, they're only emerging. So mm -hmm. you're quite right in saying that we have very few pro clinically proven stem cell-based applications. But but let's let's be also aware that I think that there are they are coming now. Mm. They're not a panacea. There's yep. not going to be some magical capsule that's labelled stem cells that right. we can inject into yeah. someone Fixes and fix everything. everything. Yep. But what we are seeing in some really well designed clinical trials is promising um, and pr promising uh, results and and progress around again taking a particular type of stem cell making it do a particular thing and maybe making a cell that's that's lacking in macular degeneration for example right. and putting that back into the eye now we've, we're seeing some again very early uh, reports but some promise in that technology now that application let's hope it continues to to as we treat more patients mm. continues to show promise and continues to be safe um, but that application for that particular type of vision loss will not be appropriate for someone who's been born without an optic nerve right, right. Um, or someone who has um, damage to a detached retina, for example. Yep. It's not necessarily going to be the same. So we have to keep that in mind. And I think that's the nuance that we haven't done well. So I think yeah. the scientific community are certainly excited about science. I'm excited. But what we don't do well is to say that the application has to be, will be quite defined. Mm. And in some conditions, the stem cell research might actually be looking at new ways to understand the disease, not necessarily develop a cellular replacement therapy. Mm. And, and I just, I think it's all, it all gets a little bit muddied. And I think that's what we need to talk more about. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think some of the, I mean, some of the, the sort of things that you don't hear about often the, are often the ones that we should be talking about more. So, I mean, one of the things I like is the idea that you might take some cells from my body produce a particular type of cell that they have in my body and then test pharmaceuticals on exactly. that in the dish with no zero risk to me, zero risk exactly. to me to see how it would actually function. I've never heard that talked about yeah, in the media yeah, yeah. even once. Yeah. And I think if you, if you want people on mm -hmm. board, you know, tell the good, we're just not telling the right stories. We're, we're selling the media at the moment, the, this will cure all. And I, and I, as I, as I said, you know, that gets researchers money and, and fame and I get that. But I think after, you know, decades of doing that and no clinically available, you know, options, you start to lose ground. And I think we need to start telling those other stories yeah. about the other amazing things we and, can do. And I think they are told, but I, I think the appetite is a little bit caught in this sort of perception that we need we need to see the benefit to that, that individual yeah. patient. Yeah. So mm -hmm. one example I might just share with you, um, uh, I want to talk about this International Society meeting mm -hmm. that's coming yeah, yeah, to well, Melbourne yep, yep. in a couple of weeks, which is very exciting, but the president of the 
International Society for Stem Cell Research, Hans Clevers, he's done some fantastic work in the Netherlands where he's uh, his initial work was he was really interested in cystic fibrosis. Right. And there are some new drugs, expensive, that can help particular people who present with a particular type of cystic fibrosis. But how to work out whether the drug's going to help them or not was really a bit more trial by error, hmm. uh, trial and error. So what he thought about was, well, he knows the mutation, what the mutation causes at a cellular level. Yep. It's the same kind of mutation you see in the lining of the lung, but also in the, in, in the lining of the gut. So he could take a biopsy from um, the the rectum and be able to grow these little tiny sort of vessels that mimic that surface, test the drug on that kind right. of facsimile, if you like, um, of the patient and see whether the, the drug does actually help that patient's type of mutation. Mm. And by doing so, not only provides an avenue for a safe and effective drug for that patient, but perhaps saves a lot of money mm. yeah. uh, and, yeah. and, and, and health dollar that can be reinvested in a, in a more appropriate route. So that idea of precision medicine and, yeah. and using stem cells or cellular approaches to augment drug discovery, I think is a really powerful and, as you say, under-discussed application. And, and there must be, I wouldn't even try and guess how much money is sitting on the shelves of pharmaceutical companies where the efficacy of a particular drug, so its effectiveness was below you know, 60% or whatever their cutoff is. And so you had, you know, maybe 40% of patients for which it worked really well. But if you don't know which 40% they are, you've, you know, you're actually exactly. endangering them or doing, doing them no good at all. If you could work out which, which the 40% were and apply those drugs in a safe way and test them, then all of a sudden, you know, there's like, there must be just a huge backlog of pharmaceutical products that are just, you know, have been invested in for decades with billions of dollars just doing nothing. Exactly. That could help a lot of people. And I think chemotherapy as well, looking at the optimal uh, agents to use. Mm. So that idea of kind of, uh, I think just providing a, a more a sharper kind of idea of what's going on is really, really powerful. Yeah. Now, tell us about this uh, <laughs> this big event coming up. Okay. So yeah. we're very excited to be welcoming, um, I think it'll be around... 2,700 people, uh, international scientists to Melbourne uh, between the 20th and 23rd of June. Yep. So uh, we're delighted to be hosting this. And, and uh, here I'm I'm wearing my Australasian Society for Stem Cell Research hat. Yep. And uh, we've got a really fantastic program where we'll have a great exchange about a lot of these issues. So the, to the, the top scientists who are driving this will be presenting their work, engaging with each other and, and sort of uh, sharing quite not their, their unpublished work, actually. And so we have some fantastic headliners, but we'll also be hearing from hundreds of up-and-coming researchers who may be, who may have the next big, big discovery mm-hmm. coming. So it's a really wonderful opportunity. And, um, and whilst that's really been staged and, and geared, geared to the scientific community, of course, we're, we're thrilled we'll have a public event on the 18th of June. Okay. Where if anyone's listening, if they want to rock up to Deacon Edge, um, you can check out some more information on, on the Stem Cells Australia website uh, or perhaps on Triple R's website. But it'll be an opportunity for you to come along and have some of your questions answered. We mm. want to talk about, we want the scientists, and I've got um, five fantastic researchers from across Australia joining me, and we're going to just be talking about how they're using stem cells in the research, why it matters, how their research fits in with what's happening internationally, and just be there to answer your questions. Because, mm. again, we're 
really keen to kind of break down some of the assumptions and perhaps some of the maybe fears, but also address some of the hype in this area. Yeah, and, and you are facilitating, so yeah. is that right? Yeah, That's so it'll, right. Be, it'll be a good event. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care who the, <laughs> don't care who the, the <laughs> five... Something, something scientists. Yeah, any, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Megan's facilitating. That's the thing, you know, so oh, you just... Wow. It's, well, it's always good when you can ask the facilitator questions and they generally know more than the panel. I find that's <laughs> oh, I couldn't fun. possibly well, say that in this case. <laughs> uh, no. um, now, of course, uh, Deacon Edge, everyone probably knows it by its former corporate name, BMW Edge down the Federation <laughs> Square. <laughs> it took me, it took me about a year to work out what people were talking about in that space. But um, it's that lovely theaterette that looks down that's onto right. the Yarra. That's right. At the back of Federation Square. And so it's 18th of... 18th of June. 18th of June. So and doors- where the, where do people get information? So, again, our website, Stem Cells Australia. Mm-hmm. I can give you the information to post on Triple R. Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, we, everybody's welcome. It's free. Uh, and we'll have the doors opening about 4 p.m. for a photography exhibition. And I've got 20 young ambassadors, enthusiastic PhD students and early career researchers who are going to don some red lab coats and they'll yeah. be there to kind of meet and greet and uh, tell tell people a bit more about their research as well as um, my more senior colleagues senior having a chance to, to, to share <laughs> their views. <laughs> that sounds cool. Now, um, Megan, before we let you go, I just wanted to sort of touch base with you on what we were talking about the last time you were on the show, which was around some of these really dodgy companies mm-hmm. that have, originally were just throughout uh, the sort of Asia region, but now have started cropping up in mm-hmm. Australia and offering stem cell therapies that are just completely bogus. And I think last year, a woman in Sydney died as a result of an infection from one of these therapeutic applications, which again was completely bogus. I mean, where are we in terms of regulation and so forth around these companies and, and what's going on? Because I mean, this is really quite a threat to, to people's health and yeah, well-being. And, and, you know, we talked before about incentives. You know, we want to see more clinical trials, right? We want to see mm. more well-conducted research to really get to the heart of whether these interventions are going to have going to deliver on the promise. Mm. And unfortunately, these clinics are bypassing that kind of uh, those standards and just going straight to the marketplace mm. and selling stuff. I don't know whether many of the interventions actually have stem cells in them, to be honest, right. but they use the rhetoric of stem cell science in their marketing. And it's very, very convincing when coupled together with this kind of heightened community expectation, yeah. for, as you mm. say, kind of building up yep. for 20 years about stem cell science. So I'm really delighted to say that the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia are, are going to take a stance in, in this area um, due to kind of like a, a quirk in the regulations. They didn't have oversight if the cells are used by an Australian doctor and the cells were from that patient for that patient's use. Right. So these so-called autologous cellular therapies. And um, you know, we've been concerned about this for a long time and have been calling for a change. And I'm just delighted to say that the Therapeutic Goods Administration will be introducing some change. They, uh, probably from the 1st of July, hmm. will have a, a ban on all advertising, which I think is great. Hmm. So... Uh, one of the complications here is from a, a, a consumer perspective, how do you work out who's legit and who's, who's dodgy? Mm, mm. So that at least will be removed. So things that will be marketed will be reputable um, products. Mm. Uh, there'll also be a higher requirement around manufacturing standards. Um, and so I think we'll see a lot of the the clinics that have been operating, if you like, sort of outside the hospital setting, outside clinical trials, 
be, be, be moving across. Mm. Um, mm. so again, I think people should be a little bit cautious still. There will be a transition yeah. period. Uh, and as I understand it, if the clinics can keep you on, on their books, they can keep operating for at least another mm. a year. Yeah. So I still think there's a degree of caution that people need to be aware of, but I'm really hoping that this change will just mean that we have some more clinical trials for people to volunteer and join. Um, but also some, you know, some good work coming through where we can get to mm. the heart of whether some of these applications really will help people. Yeah. Well, hopefully there's penalties there that are significant enough to, um, to really discourage some of this behavior because I can still imagine a scenario where you go in and you see particular doctors for certain ailments and they say, oh, well, by the way, I also offer this treatment mm-hmm. and, you know, word of mouth. And so, you know, these things, that's how they, they get around. And, and so even though they may not advertise, there's still, you know, that avenue for um, for people being, you know, caught. And, and in a sense, I think, you know, we, we probably need something similar to, you know, some of the the anti-cancer council advertisements and so forth for stem cells. Just That's saying right. this stuff is not is not there. You shouldn't That's be right. you shouldn't be utilizing this. Think, if, you know, look out. Yeah, think twice. Yeah. So I think a really big message is if you if someone's trying to sell you something that almost sounds too good to be true, stop. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and and perhaps gather that information, but go and speak to someone who's a medical practitioner who's not trying to sell you something yeah. for that kind of bit more impartial advice. Yeah. So I, I think for me, it's always been that commercialization, the entrepreneurial spin yeah. that makes me uncomfortable. We all want to see compassionate access. Mm. You know, we want to see people who are in genuine uh, need uh, and perhaps there is something that may help them or, or is worth exploring. But when it's got a big $10,000 price tag on it and it's being offered to anyone who walks through the door. I think that's when we should ask a few questions. Sounds a bit dodgy. Megan, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us again. Um, We'll talk to you again in a year or something. This is all going. (laughs) It's always fun. But uh, keep up the good work. You're definitely one of Australia's uh, key ambassadors in keeping this uh, industry on, you know, in check. And um, good luck with the big event. Thank you very much. Associate Professor Megan Munsey is Deputy Director of the University of Melbourne's Centre for Stem Cell Systems and heads the Ethics Engagement and Policy Unit of Stem Cells Australia. Three. Triple. Back everybody, we've got one little piece of news left for you. Chris KP, you got something? Uh, if you want, to, if you like uh, blue tongue lizards, and who doesn't? Uh, they have blue tongues. Work with me, um, and they they usually display their tongue as a defensive mechanism. Uh, and it turns out that it's not just sticking out their tongue. There's the amount of tongue they stick out. So if you annoy the blue tongue, it'll give you a bit of a flicker, which is just to kind of you know leave me alone. But if you really push the envelope. Basically, the last thing they do is stick the whole tongue out. And the reason this matters, um, and this is uh, in, a, in a paper published in the Behavioural Ecology and Sociobiology Journal, mm-hmm. um, they found that the UV um, reflectiveness of the tongue is it's a known thing, but it gets more UV active, if you like, or more bright the further back in the, the mouth of the lizard you go. Mm-hmm. The little flick at the front is pretty blue, and if you're a, an animal that senses UV, and a lot of um, mm-hmm. uh, animals do, um, a lot of prey birds, for example, will see that, you'll see a little flash. But if it sticks its whole tongue out, it's a really intense thing and it will really jump out um, from its mouth. So, yeah, essentially, it's not just having a blue tongue, it's a UV blue tongue and the more back in the mouth you go, the more bright it is. Uh, and I was just saying off air too that one of the things I loved about the research here is, of course, to be able to see this happen, you've got to freak the, the lizard out, right? And so they had a fake fox and a fake snake and a, and a fake eagle but you need a control group too, don't you? So you know it's uh, it's it's legit. And so they also had a piece of wood 
<laughs> a completely non-threatening piece of wood. <laughs> not not shaped like anything, just a piece of wood. I don't, apparently just a chunk of wood. Because that way, if the, you know, the, you know that the lizard's not sticking its tongue out just by habit or it's that time of the right, day, right, right. It, it's actually a defensive behaviour. They, they had to prove that. So I'm wondering if that was especially um, a, a huge part of the, the research budget, whether someone just grabbed a bit of wood out of the... Timber out of the backyard. <laughs> yes, <laughs> door wedge. I don't know. <laughs> a bit of 4 that they had. It's great. Yeah. In the backyard, going a bit rusty. Oh, well, Chris... Okay. Thank you very much for that. I won't I look at the blue tongue lizards the same way again, or, or bits of wood for that matter. <laughs> or tongues generally. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, folks, thanks so much for uh, listening to us today. Dr. Ewan, good to see you. Likewise. And Chris KP, always good to see you. Likewise, it was fun. And we will chat to you again next week. Until then, have a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And thank you for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.